Thank you, Alex and Lorinda. I appreciate that. Amen. I didn't know what they were going to sing. I just felt that God was going to speak to them, and he spoke to me this morning through their song. Appreciate it so very much. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that uh, sometimes can be difficult to decipher. Um, Solomon, in his wisdom, speaks of, of many great things, and sometimes it's hard to, to understand all that he would say to us, but in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, the, the great wisdom of Solomon, he shares with us a story, one that is both profoundly happy and exciting and also profoundly sad. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. And we'll begin reading in verse 13. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city, and few men within it, and there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is greater than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Father, I thank you for the, for the presence of Jehovah. I'm thankful that in spite of situations, in and out of circumstances, that you're with us. And this morning, as, as we speak to this thy people, we ask that you'd help us to not only rightly divide the word of truth, but that we would discern the wisdom of Solomon as it applies to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to live in Solomon's day. For so many cities, they were responsible for their own defense. I don't know about you, but I would feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable living in Altamont if we were responsible for our own defense. <laughs> but Solomon tells us the story of a little town of Altamont, little city, with few walls around it, few men to defend it. And here comes the king and he has come to conquer. I don't know the plans of this wicked king. Solomon doesn't tell us. 
I don't know his, I don't know what he wants with this city, but very likely that the idea is that they are going to not only take more land for themselves, but they're going to have more slaves. And I suppose that if it was just a matter of land, that uh, exchanging one king for another is, would probably have been fine, but nobody's excited about being a slave, and so they are cowered behind their flimsy walls with their few men, their little bit of weapons, but not anything like what is out there. The great king has come, and this little city is going to fall. The king gathers his people together. He, he stands out perhaps on the porch of the palace and as he proclaims to the people the situation. This great king has come. You can see his strength. You can see his numbers. He says, I'm not going to lie to you. We have no idea what to do. The situation looks hopeless. And I just need to be honest with you, this, uh, today uh, as, as they are gathered outside and we are gathered on the inside, that unless someone here has a plan, unless someone can come up with an idea that we can use in order to win, we're going to have to consider terms of surrender. And there's a wise man. He's old, but he's poor. It seems to contradict what Proverbs talks about. Wise men tend to be wealthy in, in, in Proverbs. Wise men tend to prosper. That They tend to experience uh, the blessings of God, it seems like, in, in Proverbs. And many, many preachers have misunderstood that this idea of wisdom equals wealth. And not just preachers, but people. And we've come to this idea that if, if a person's not financially successful in life, that probably we shouldn't follow their path. Or we shouldn't follow their wisdom. I don't know why this man is poor. I don't know why God has not chosen to bless him in particular. Perhaps his wisdom came from the experiences of foolishness in his youth. And now he's gotten to the place where he has learned from those mistakes. And perhaps he no longer has the strength, perhaps he no longer has the resources in order to prosper we're not sure. We're not sure. Sometimes God's people just aren't blessed financially. Sometimes that happens. But this wise man, an old man, a, a man who lives within this city, he has the answer. He has the answer. Solomon doesn't tell us what the answer is. If he told us, we'd miss the point. And so the wise man, this, this man who has 
no reason to be heard at any other time. This, this man who, has, who does not have any kind of reputation does ne- has probably ha- never been in the, in the palace of the king. Makes his way to the guard at the front door and, and says to him, I, I have an idea. The king is desperate. And desperate people do desperate things. Under most circumstances, this man never would talk to the king. Under most circumstances, his wisdom would never have been heard by the king. He has wise people around him. He has, he has the, the learned. He has the, the educated he has the, 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 those with military experience. All of them have gathered around the table and, and, and have said, we, get, we don't know. And when you're desperate, it doesn't matter. You'll take help from anywhere or anyone. I don't know if you've ever been desperate before. I don't know if you've ever been to the place that you would, you're willing to do just about anything so long as it wasn't immoral, you're just about willing to do anything to make it happen. The king's desperate. And the guard comes and says, there's a man here, he's an old man. He says his name, and, and the king says, I don't recognize that name, I don't know who this is. I thought I knew everybody in the city. It's a little city, it's not very big. I don't know him. What's this guy like? Well, King, to be honest, he's dressed in rags and he smells funny. I'm not sure we should let him in, Your Majesty, but the situation's serious and it's desperate and I thought I'd better not turn him away without asking you. The king says, send him in. It's probably a waste of time, but nobody else has any ideas. And here comes this man, this old man. He's got a gray beard. He's done his best to clean up himself. But there's probably not much water. Everything's being rationed because they're under siege. He's poor, so he probably hasn't eaten well. He probably doesn't have any teeth left because under the siege there, those fruits and vegetables have been carefully rationed and being a poor person, he couldn't afford them. He doesn't look like much. He's not impressive in any way. And the king does everything he can to suppress a wrinkle of his nose. These are not the kind of people the king has conversations with. King invites him in and says, says, to, the, uh, to, says to the man, uh, uh, I, I'm told that you have an idea, you have a, a solution to our problem. I suppose he stutters a little bit. He's not used to royalty. There's a lot of wealth all around him. And the poor wise man, this old man, Says, your, uh, your majesty, 
what if we do this? And he lays out the plan. The generals are there. The wise men are there. They're all gathered there, standing there on either side of, of the throne room. And as this man stutters and stammers his way out, uh, getting out what he has to say, eyes begin to light up around the throne room. The general begins to stroke his beard. It might work. It's risky, but it might work. Different ones around the room begin to nod their approval. This is the best thing we've heard. It just might work. And so they gather together. He gathers his men, they talk about it, they tweak the plan, they put it into action. And despite the impossibility of the situation, they win. They win. Can you imagine the celebration as the defeated enemy leaves, the siege is over? There's no more rationing of the fruits and vegetables and no more rationing of meat and there's no more rationing of the water. There, uh, this is a joyous day, a day to celebrate. There will be banners and there will be a, uh, perhaps a, uh, just a, a parade and there will be dancing and singing and, and oh, it's going to be a wonderful day and everybody's excited and celebrating and uh, the king leads the parade down through the streets. But the old wise man was not invited to be a part of the parade. Nobody remembered. Nobody cared to honor him. And Solomon looks on and he says, Wow. Wow. The wise man is not invited to be a part of the king's council. He's not rewarded. He's not given wealth. Though the whole city owes him everything they have. He goes back to being a nobody. A nobody. And in the midst of dancing and singing and celebration, in a little hut with no bed, with no furniture, just a dirt floor, an old man weeps as he's forgotten. And I wonder if he wondered was it worth it? Was it worth it? What a story hidden away in Ecclesiastes. Not one we hear preached very often. Not one that's told in our Sunday school classes. But this morning, I would like to suggest to you that you and I as children of God, are that wise man.
the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we have a situation where we live in a world where we, where we face attacks from all over. We're familiar with the Easter morning bombings in Sri Lanka. Just in the last couple of weeks, a church in Wichita had several of their windows broken out with rocks as they were thrown through their expensive stained glass windows. That's in our state. Churches are targeted. And the judges keep ruling against us. And I wonder this morning if the church is falling into the trap of wondering, is it worth it anymore? Is it worth it? As I think about this story, as Solomon is telling the story, I realized that First of all, that city still needed that wise man. In the midst of, of great uh, persecution, in, in the midst of, of his poverty and being ignored, that city was dependent on that man's wisdom in the midst of their difficulty. And even now, I, I hear the calls that within our own country that churches should be taxed and that, that we need to uh, uh, get, uh, put further restrictions on, on the rights of, of Christians and restrictions on the rights of churches. And I would just like to remind us this morning that the world still needs us. And we keep forgetting what the church has done. Throughout history, Godly men and women have stood up and said, this isn't right. Some of them we remember. We remember uh, William Wilberforce who stood up against slavery in, the, in England. And for all of his career, year after year, he fought to end slavery in England. John Woolman is a name that many, many... No, the man who's, who was as a Quaker, God revealed to him, showed him that slavery was wrong, and he caused the whole of the northern colonies to be in opposition to slavery because of his stand. And he changed the, the denomination of the, of the friends, their views on it. It's hard for us to imagine northern Quakers owning slaves, but before John Woolman, they did. We remember famous Christians like Susan B. Anthony who fought for the rights of our women. We remember... John Knox, who fought for Protestant faith, so much so that Queen Mary said that she feared nothing except for the prayers of John Knox. Of John Fox, I'm sorry. 
like, yeah, this morning. <laughs> but history's forgotten other names, like Elizabeth Fry, Christian woman who fought hard in the nation of England in order to get them to change the way that they treated prisoners. And history's forgotten, and only a few would remember the name of the man who fought so hard, the Christian man who fought and fought and fought in the state of Georgia and pled and begged that we would not mistreat the Native Americans, and he lost. And so his name is largely forgotten because he didn't get his way. He didn't get what God wanted. And because he lost, there was the trail of tears that has been a mark of shame on our nation. But there were Christians that were standing up and their names are largely forgotten. Unless you're a historian, unless you're someone who just really is, it digs deep into it. Most history books don't even record the resistance to the trail of tears all led by Christians. They, there are many historians who believe that England was headed towards a revolution just like France experienced. But God sent England two men by the name of John and Charles who caused such a stir and caused such a revival in the land that God permitted England to avoid that same fate. What am I trying to help us to understand this morning? It doesn't matter whether history remembers us. It doesn't matter if we get put into history books. It doesn't matter if the world recognizes the value that the church brings. We still do it. As I understand, uh, the researchers have figured out that a small to medium-sized church brings to their community $250,000 a year of value. Of value. When you consider the, the uh, counseling that they offer and, they, and you consider the, the activities that they offer young people and get them off the streets and, and as they begin to, to tally all this stuff up, the food banks and, and other resources. And all of a sudden, a small little church, a medium-sized church, is doing so much for the community that it makes no sense to tax them. But people don't realize the value. In our own nation, the largest organization that helps those that are uh, runaways, teenage runaways, and those that have been caught into prostitution, the largest organization is a Catholic charity called Covenant House. Our nation right now faces a, a terrible, terrible blight in human trafficking. My home state of Michigan, I believe, is number two in the nation. as the worst state in, a, in America for human trafficking. And there's a church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, it is Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo, Michigan is working and building and doing the best that they can to be able to create a campground uh, environment in which those who have been freed from 
human trafficking will have an opportunity to be uh, counseled and helped and reintroduced back into society as whole people, not making them go back broken. And they're in the process of doing that even now. And a friend of mine is working on her doctorate degree so that she can lead this organization and help these women who have been ripped away from their homes and traumatized by this awful blight. I just want to remind us this morning, there's a work to do. There's a work to do. And we can say, you know, we can, we can stay in our little huts of our disappointments and the times we weren't heard and the times that the, the courts ruled against us and we can, we can uh, be frustrated that the world doesn't recognize what we do and yet I want you to know they still need us whether they realize it or not. And folks, whether we get credit from this world or not, we need to still do what's right. We still have a calling to do what's right. People don't value it. It doesn't matter. We do it because it's right. But what I find interesting as I continue reading the story, not only did this city need this wise man, this poor wise man, but afterwards they despised him. They despised him. Why would you despise the person who saved your city? Why would you do that? Why would you despise this man? This man should be a hero. Every one of these people owe their lives. They owe their children. They owe all their property, all of that. They owe it to this man. Why is he despised? And it's for that exact reason. They owe him something. They have a debt to him. Nobody wants to have a debt to this poor man. To the king, yes, he's, he's the king. He's the, he's the one who's responsible. He wants the glory. He wants the honor. To the generals, to those that are his advisors, absolutely, those are in position for... But this man proved that he was wiser than all the rest. And nobody appreciates that. Nobody appreciates that. And you know what? The world doesn't appreciate the wisdom of the church. And as they keep rejecting us, they keep mocking us for the, what we believe, and they continue to do what they want to do, and they keep getting worse and worse and worse off. And they just, and they just, it, how dare you tell us that we're wrong? The church is warned, and we said, you know, if we, we, we can't have easy divorce, we, just, we can't just have people divorcing, it, it's, it's wrong, we just can't do that. The world says we want to be able to do that as much as we want, and it's hurt the children. One of the most, one of the most likely people to go to church is an African-American woman. 
She's most likely of any demography to go to church, the African-American woman. And yet, the vast majority of children, African-American children, are raised without fathers. This is not an indictment against the the African-Americans. This is an indictment against losing our moral compass as a nation. And we're despised because we still say divorce is wrong. In fact, most of the churches have caved to the pressure. And we're the weird ones. But we've learned that the children that are raised in these kind of environments are more likely to go to jail and they're more likely to commit violence and we, they're more likely to have divorce and they're more likely to have children out of wedlock and all these dangers. Oh, and by the way, they're much more likely to do drugs. I told you that the value of a church, a little, a little to medium-sized church, is about 250000 They found that a church lowers violent crime. That lowers drug use. And, and when a church closes down, it not, doesn't take but a few years and all those things start coming up. Just our presence lowers crime. Why is that? Because we stand for what's right. We stand for what's moral. And they despise us for it. Jesus said that we would be hated for his sake. Does that mean we quit? Does that mean because that we're hated, because the world doesn't appreciate what we're doing for them, that we don't do it, that we stop? If I'm not appreciated, I'm not, I'm just, we're just going to quit. What kind, of, what, what kind of, of person says they have a moral compass and doesn't get appreciated that they quit? We don't do what's right for the applause of men. We don't do what's right because, uh, you know, it's going to put money in our pockets. That it's going to uh, get us a, a parade with our name on it or a trophy. We do what's right because it's right. And whether they bomb our churches or whether they behead our people, whether or they uh, rip out our Bibles and they forbid us to sing and gather together, whatever they might do, we don't change who we are. We won't change. Because we don't do it for them. We do it because it's right. Let the world despise us. We're still going to help them. We'll still fight for prison reform. And we'll still fight for, for the, those that are downtrodden and those that are beat up on. And we're still going to, to stand up for, for unmoral issues and, and let the judges rule the way they want to and let the politicians make their laws the way they want to and let them do what they want to to the church. But the church is not going to change. At least it better not. Because the, one of the most sad things about the American church is it's so compromised that it's become powerless. The world says we want a worldly church, 
but they don't, they don't have anything to do with it. Folks, what's the point of being a worldly church? What's the point of, of, of j- gathering together and being just like the world? I have no desire for those things. If that's the way you want to go, I have better things to do on Sunday. It's just the way I feel about it. Why bother going to church and, and singing and, and hearing some person get up there and telling us what to do and how to do it or, or telling us how wonderful we are when we could do other things on Sunday if that's all we're going to do? But if there's anything real about this thing, if there's anything that's true about, about the way of Christ... It means we do it whether the world appreciates it or not. Because I'll tell you the last thing that I noticed is though the king of that city didn't notice, Solomon did. Solomon noticed what that wise man did. And even though the world may not recognize what we've done, we have a king in heaven who knows exactly what we are doing. And we may... We may do and try to help and, 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 and do what we can for this world and the world can reject it. And we might even fail just like those that fought against the displacement of the Native Americans. But don't think that success is all that matters. It doesn't matter that, that this trail of tears happened Those people were recognized. And I believe with all my heart, those that stood up and said, this is wrong, we can't do it. I believe that they'll just be as honored as much as those, as William Wilberforce who stood up and and finally got it through. God doesn't call us to, to win every battle. He calls us to stand up for what's right. And he notices. And he's marked it down. He sees. This morning I want to stand not on the right side of history, but on the right side of God's word. I'm, I think I shared in Sunday school this morning, I'm just tired of hearing this right side of history stuff. The right side of history is whoever wins and gets their way. I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of God's word. Because one day history will be over. There will be no more history and there will be no more future. There will only be the standing before Almighty God as He opens up the books. And in that day, I'm not going to care who won. I'm not going to care what's popular. On that day, I'm not, uh, God's not going to ask for a poll of, of who thinks they did right or who thinks they, that, the, that I did wrong. But, but what, all that's going to matter is if the Master says, you saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me naked and you clothed me. You saw me a stranger and you took me in. You saw me in prison and you visited me. That's all that's going to matter. Is what Jesus has to say about what we did. Folks, we don't live for this world and we don't live for the applause of men. We live 
in honor of our great King. And whether He promotes us or whether He allows us to die in anonymity, we will keep serving. Whether our story is one of joy or of sadness, whether we're promoted or left in our hut, whatever the situation, one day, one day, He's going to make everything right. And I ask us this morning, are we going to allow fear are we going to allow hatred? Are we going to allow the despi- uh, being despised by the world? Are we going to allow the judges and the politicians and the terroristic organizations, are we going to allow them to tell us how to live? Or are we going to be people of the book? I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what we'll face. But I know this. I want, with all my heart, to be a man of integrity and not be pulled by the whims of the people. For today it's popular and tomorrow it's forgotten. But God's word always remains. I want to be a man of the book. Whether it's popular with the world or popular with the church, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's what God wants for you and for me. One sinner destroyeth much good. I don't want to destroy much good. I want to be a blessing. I want to be a help. I want to be a difference maker wherever God has planted me. Let's stand together. Sister Julie, would you dismiss us in prayer?